What is my man that thou art mindful of him? The psalmist said that the Lord's taking knowledge, taking thought of us. Man, what a, what a God that we have. Amen. Turn in your Bibles this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 this evening. Uh, what a blessing. Let me say I appreciate the Lord. I appreciate him meeting with us this morning. And uh, you pray. We had one raise their hand and you pray that God would just work in that individual's heart, in their life. And, uh, you know, uh, wouldn't it be a, a sad thing to be that close to heaven and die and go to hell? And uh, when I say that close to heaven, I don't mean close to me or close to you or close to our church, but I mean to have acknowledged. You remember what the Lord said to the uh, young man, said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. I mean, he was right there. You know, he wasn't far away. But you can be right there and still not be there. Amen. You can be right there. My preacher used to preach a message on uh, Judas who kissed the door to heaven and died and went to hell. And uh, we we definitely need to pray for that individual. God knows who they are. Amen. First Corinthians chapter number 10 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. First Corinthians chapter 10. Verse number one, the word of God says, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to get to be in your house. Now take your word this evening. Uh, Lord, it is the sword of the Spirit. We're asking Him to wield it tonight. Lord, I, I can preach it, and I can teach it, and I can read it, and they can listen to it, but unless He wields it in our hearts and minds, it'll be of none effect. So I pray that he would, would do that work that only he can do of administering the word of God, uh, of, of dealing with us distinctly, deliberately, directly as to where we are and what is needful in our lives. Lord, help us to be receptive to that truth and obedient to it tonight as well. Lord, I pray for that individual that raised their hand in need of salvation this morning, Lord. As far as I know, they left here lost. I don't know what they may have done or asked you to do in their hearts uh, in privacy and in secret, Lord. but. But to my knowledge, as far as I know, they left here lost. And so I just pray that the sweet Holy Ghost would keep dealing with them, that He, Lord, would not give them any rest, that He would show them, Lord, give them no peace, uh, but point them towards Calvary, Lord, and be persistent in their mind in drawing their mind back to that truth and that reality uh, before they die in their sins, Lord, that they might be saved by Your grace. Lord, we love You. We thank You for what You have done, what You will do. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
A couple of Wednesday nights ago, we preached on the thought, God is faithful. And that message took us to this text, uh, and we talked about how that God is faithful in the hour of temptation. I'm thankful the Lord's faithful even when I'm not. I'm just going to say that again. Me and Ken agree with it, and Charlie a little bit. So, I'm glad that God's faithful even when I'm not. I'm glad in moments when I'm wavering that He never wavers. And I need to be reminded that in spite of my unfaithfulness, He's still faithful and I don't have to be unfaithful because He is always faithful. And so we looked at several instances of the faithfulness of God and the emphasis that the Holy Spirit gives to it in the New Testament. But this evening I want us to go back to 1 Corinthians 10 and I want us to take a moment to consider distinctly what Paul is talking about in this text. We, we hit on it, we touched on it just for a moment the other evening, but I want to spend a few moments and really look at the context and really look at the point that Paul is seeking to drive home. I'd remind you that the church at Corinth undoubtedly is the most carnal of all the New Testament churches that Paul penned a, an epistle to that we're aware of. He, he uh, wrote to the church at Corinth because they had several problems in their church. And by the way, it's just ironic to me that uh, the charismatic movement always wants to emphasize tongues, tongues, tongues. And, and, and listen, their understanding and their, their perspective on tongues is wrong. It's wrong practically. It's wrong biblically. Uh, it's wrong logistically. Amen. But, but even beyond that, even were there to be merit to, to their claim concerning tongues, it's interesting to note that it was the most carnal church in the New Testament that Paul wrote to about the matter of tongues. Never said anything about it when he wrote to the church at Galatia. Never said anything about it to the church at Thessalonica. Never said anything about it to the church at Philippi. When we wrote to the church at Corinth, which was such an absolute mess, such an absolute hot mess, uh, he wrote to them because uh, there was divisions and conflict within the body of Christ. People weren't getting along. He wrote to them because there was gossiping and backbiting and, and, and snipping at each other going on. He wrote to them because there was a fellow in the church that was involved in such immoral sin that even the Gentiles didn't have examples of this type of sin. And what's worse, the church was tolerating that sin and, and overlooking that sin. I mean, I'm saying this, the church at Corinth had problems. He writes to them and he encourages them to deal with these matters in biblical and scriptural wisdom. And when he comes to chapter number 10, he spends a few moments exhorting them regarding the matter of overcoming temptation. And to do this, he brings them back to an Old Testament example of temptation in the life of God's people. And he points to them several cautionary truths and then reminds them some things about how God has equipped us in the New Testament. I'm glad, hey listen, I understand, boy, how do I say this right? I, I'm glad, well, I'm, I'll get it said here in a second. I want to be careful how I say this. While there will never be a time in my life when I can keep all together from sinning, I can choose to not sin in my life. I, in, in other words, I, I'll never be without sin, but that don't mean that I have to sin. I can choose to overcome temptation. I don't have to yield to the power of sin in my life. I don't have to let the devil have victory over me. I can choose by the help of God, with the power of God and through the strength of God, to overcome temptation and to live a life of victory to the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing to them to remind them that this is the truth. You know, sometimes when sin's been in your life so long, you just get the idea that it's normal. But if you're saved, sin is not normal in your life. It's not supposed to be there. It's not pleasing to God. 
And it's not the way God designed us as born-again Christians to live and to behave. It is an abnormal thing. And he's writing to a group of people that had normalized sin. And he's writing to encourage them to say, you know, you don't have to let sin have victory. You can choose to overcome temptation in your life. And so he takes them back to the Old Testament and gives them some truths that they are to consider. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Paul's Old Testament text on overcoming temptation. He brings them back to the experiences of the children of Israel and gives them a few instructive truths that should inform the way they deal with this matter of temptation. Now listen, the Bible says every man is tempted. Now what James said? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Lust with conceit bringeth forth sin. Sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. I don't care who you are, every man is tempted. So we're either going to learn to deal with temptation in the productive, correct, biblical way, or we're going to be overcome by temptation. So Paul doesn't want us to be overcome by temptation. He wants us to overcome temptation and he equips us with the tools that we need. Now when we read this passage, there's basically three portions to it. The first five verses point us to the common experiences of the children of Israel. Uh, The next few verses, verse 6 down to verse number 10, share with us their corrupt exhibitions. How they lived and what he warns us concerning and it is sort of, there's this bell ringing throughout it of neither this, neither that, neither this. He's warning them not to live as they lived. And then finally, verse 11 down to verse 14, we see their cautionary example. Notice with me first off tonight, their common experiences. Paul begins by pointing out, not that which was distinct in regards to those that fell in sin, but rather the things that were similar. He says in verse number 1, Moreover, brethren... I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud. He's talking about the cloud of God's presence, the Shekinah glory of God that overshadowed the children of Israel and then that led them through the wilderness. It says, and all passed through the sea, talking about the Red Sea. He says, and we're all baptized unto Moses. Now, we've got to be careful lest we conflate the New Testament truth of baptism and the Old Testament example and make them synonymous, although there are some parallels. But what he's saying is this, they passed with Moses through that water. And when they came out the other side, they belonged unto God and belonged unto Moses as God's man. They were submitted to Moses' authority, in other words, and his headship in the nation says, we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Notice two thoughts here. Number one, I want you to notice of the children of Israel of old. Now, uh, let me give you just a little bit of background. You remember that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they immediately made a trip to Kadesh Barnea. It only took them 11 days to cross the wilderness. They should have been 11 days from the Red Sea until they were in Canaan. Well, it took them 11 days to get to Canaan, but then they stopped there. They wouldn't trust God. They wouldn't go forward. They wouldn't believe that God could give them the land. And so they then took a 40-year detour waiting on all those that in disbelief, in lack of faith, had refused to follow God. And this was God's pronouncement upon them, that every single Israelite that was 20 years old and older uh, would not enter into the Promised Land, but they would perish in the wilderness. And Paul is drawing a comparison between those that perished and those that survived in the wilderness. And he points, number one, to this truth, that they were all in God's presence. 
So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's not that some died and some didn't because some really saw it and some really didn't. Can I tell you, we have a tendency sometimes to, uh, how do I say this right, to marginalize those that fall into sin. And we don't do that as a, as a criticism of them. Really, we do it as an elevation of ourselves. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, we'll say, well, they must have not really got it. Uh, so you're saying that to say that you really did. Well, they must just not really been very spiritual. Well, you say that to imply that you or I very much are. Can I tell you what the reality is? There's folks, I'm talking about, hey, listen, no less than David in the Old Testament fell into sin. I mean, you're talking about the sweet psalmist of Israel. You're talking about a, a man, the anointed of God over the nation. Uh, they were all, listen, they had all seen the same thing. Hey, you may have had, you may have seen some things. That don't mean you can't fall into sin. You may have seen God work in your life. That don't mean you can't fall into sin. But we all have this tendency to look at those that fall into sin and say, well, it must be because they were phony. No, maybe it was because they fell. And maybe that could happen to you just like it could happen to them and just like it could happen to me. Moses points out the fact they were all in his presence. Man, they had all been, they had all been covered over by that glory cloud. They had all passed through the Red Sea. I'm talking about those that perished and those that survived. They had seen those waters piled up on either side. They had seen the hand of God. They had seen the miracles of God. They had submitted themselves to the authority of Moses. They all had seen the same things. What was that Shekinah glory of God? It indicated the presence of God. It was an indication. In fact, later on after the tabernacle was settled and then after the temple was built once a year whenever the Day of Atonement would come and they would offer the uh, sacrifice of atonement, the Shekinah glory of God, that same cloud would rest down on the temple and it was signifying that God had come down to observe that blood on the mercy seat and to atone over the children of Israel to accept that blood as an atonement for their sin. But when they were in the wilderness, that cloud would follow and would lead them day by day. The Bible tells us there was a time, and this is undoubtedly what's being spoken of here, whenever the children of Israel come out of Egypt, the cloud is in front of them leading them. And then when the, Israel, or when the Egyptians are coming behind them, the cloud moves behind them. Well, how did it move behind them? It moved through them. They moved through the cloud. They literally moved through the presence of God as they journeyed in the wilderness. And yet a whole generation of them perished because they got involved in sin. They were all in his presence. Not only that, verse 3 says this, they did all eat the same spiritual meat. Meat, when it's used in the Old Testament in this context, really in the Bible in general, meat is speaking not necessarily of flesh, but it's speaking of food. And when it talks about they did all eat that same spiritual meat, it's talking about the manna, the bread that God gave them from heaven, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Hey, not just those that survived, but those that perished too, drank of that water that came out of the rock when it was smitten by Moses. And the Bible says that that rock was Christ. So not only were they all in His presence, but they were all partakers as well. Uh, listen, I, 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 and I understand what people mean when they say this. If we're to be frank, the truth probably finds the middle on what I'm about to say. It is true that a person can profess Christ, but there, if there is no shred of any spiritual light or life in them, that's probably a good indication they've never truly been born again. It's probably a good indication they've never been born again. I would say this, that uh, God's going to own His children. 
He may own it with his, with with his favor, or he may uh, he may own it with his chastening. But one way or the other, he's going to own his children. He'll not deny them. But I would say this as well. There's a ditch. Listen, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And the ditch on the other side is some people will say if somebody gets backslid on God, well, they must have never been saved in the first place. I think we say that. We're not saying that to make them feel better. And most of the time, we ain't saying it to them. We're just saying it about them. So we ain't saying it to try to help them. So why do we say that? I'll tell you why most of us say that. It's a simple, easy answer to a, a thorny problem in the life of believers. Can I tell you, hey, Peter said it's possible for a man to get so backslid he forgets he's washed from his old sin. I, you can go all through the Old Testament. You'll find Peter on one day, hey, listen, pronouncing Jesus to be the blessed Son of God, God incarnate in the flesh, and the next moment he's cussing. Uh, here's the truth of the matter. You may, be, you may be as saved as any man has ever been. That don't mean you're exempt from the dangers and perils of sin. I'm talking about they were not only in His presence, they were all partakers as well. Uh, Those that lived and those that perished, they both ate of the manna. They both drank of the water. I'll tell you, just because you got born again, just because you were saved, that doesn't mean that sin cannot destroy your life. And it's a simple, easy answer to look at everyone whose life sin has destroyed and say, well, it must have not been real with them. They must not really got it. They must have been phony. They must have been putting on it makes us feel like somehow we are protected from it. But here's the stark reality. They might have been as saved as you are, but they let sin get in their life, and sin destroys. Sin will burn you down. And because of that, sin destroyed them. They were all in His presence. They were all partakers. But we see in our text that many of them nevertheless perished. Verse 5, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I listen for for every I, I would I would venture a guess that if you were to by percentage break down preachers uh, examples from the pulpit, the vast majority of them regard Christians that have their cautionary anecdotes about Christians that have let sin get in their life and it has destroyed them far and away. You'll hear more stories about people that's truly born again and saved that their life goes to the dogs because they get sin in it then you will hear about lost people whose lives are destroyed by the sin that has them in bondage. The truth of the matter is, there's plenty of folks, and I wish it wasn't the case, but it's a sad truth, and I could give testimony of it as well. I could tell you name after name, family after family, story after story of people that I have no doubt in my heart and mind they're truly born again. They know the Lord. They've been saved by the grace of God. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and their life is in pieces today because they let sin get involved. The truth is, they were all in His presence. They were all partakers, but many of them perished. Why? What was the distinction between the two? Well, very simply, some allowed sin in their heart and in their life, and some did not. And we need to understand starkly tonight that how our life turns out will be dictated by whether we let God have His will and way or whether we allow sin a place in our lives. You're saved. God bless you. That's wonderful. I'm proud of you and I'm proud for you and I can't wait to spend eternity in heaven with you. But just because you're saved and born again, that does not default mean that your life is going to be lived for the glory of God. There are plenty of people that live a life of shame, though they're saved by the grace of God because they let sin in their life. So what does Paul tell us? Well, he reminds us that even us as believers, we are prone to this same peril. We are not exempt from it. We can see by their common experience that we too could allow our life to be shipwrecked by sin. And then he points, number two, to their corrupt exhibition. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, 
he goes down a laundry list of, of the offenses of the children of Israel. And he points out not only the particulars, but the process of how sin destroyed some of them. You know, sin has a process. The Bible says, hey, listen, that every man is tempted when? When he is drawn away of his own lust. Then when lust hath conceived. Then when sin is finished. There is a process to sin. We might just see the end product all at one time, but it didn't go from zero to a hundred in a moment. It started somewhere and it followed a path. What path does sin take? Well, Paul points to five different things as examples. Notice number one, he points to the desire of their sin. Verse number six. He says, now these things were our examples. What are the these things? He's saying the fact that some of them perished, that some of them survived, is an example to us. These things were our examples. To the intent. He's telling us what God intends from that. What does He want us to learn? To the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lust. You know, sin begins with desire. This is why sin begins in the heart. Uh, there has never been a sin that assaulted us from the outside that did not first have an informant on the inside. Sin always has an influence inwardly before it ever manifests outwardly. Satan knows our appetites. He knows our desires. He knows our weaknesses. And before the children of Israel ever committed any outward sin, they first lusted in their own heart. Now, what are the evil things that's being spoken of here? Well, Numbers chapter 11 tells us a little bit about this moment. It says in verse number 4, the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. You can already sign me out of this party. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. So how did it begin? It began with them looking and longing backwards to things that did not belong unto their future anymore. These were all things that were the product and the prize of Egypt. God had set their appetite and their affection upon this heavenly manna. He had changed the course and direction of their destiny as a people. But the problem was they kept looking backwards at the things that they used to enjoy. If you allow desire a place, hey, listen, there are certain things that an all-wise, all-knowledgeable God has, has uh, placed certain appetites, certain desires in our disposition, in our makeup. Not everything that you want is right. Not everything, just because you want it, don't mean that it's right. I'd say this, not everything that's right for others is necessarily right for you. Uh, listen, when you look down that laundry, it don't look like my grocery list, except maybe the cucumbers and the onions, amen? Uh, sometimes when I want vegetables, I eat fish. But other than that, well, I guess we do garlic when we eat Italian. But uh, when you go down through this laundry, these things are not wrong in and of themselves, but they were the products and vestiges of an old dead life. They were things that had belonged to another age. And they were things that were calling them back to a way of life that they had left behind. There are certain things that sometimes just by, by nature of your experiences that are off limits to you. Certain things that are part of an old dead way of living. If you give those things a place in your heart and in your life, 
They'll lead you down a dark path. And they'll destroy your life. We see the desire of their sin first mentioned. Then look at verse number 7. It says, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, it's interesting that the Bible points to idolatry here. In fact, when it speaks of the behavior of the people, while certainly it is implied in that phrase to eat and drink and rose to play, some sort of corrupt, perverse religious ceremony, the implication there is less upon the idolatry and more really upon the iniquity. And yet Paul points to the idolatry of the matter. Now, what's he speaking of? Well, of course, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that he's bringing our mind back to Exodus chapter 32. Listen to what it says, Exodus 32. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. And the Bible says when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses... The man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron, and he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. What's he pointing to? The deception of their sin. In order for them to be involved in that sin, they first had to yield their hearts to idolatry to permit that behavior. I tell you that iniquity and idolatry are so intertwined that to to separate, to divide the two is really to do a disservice to either concept. And that's why even though Paul points to their illicit behavior here, he connects it with their idolatry because their idolatry was necessary to provide an excuse for their iniquity and their iniquity was necessary to provide a path to their idolatry. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying when you let sin in your life, you've put something above Christ. You've made something God instead of Him. And so sin just inherently in its nature is a form of idolatry. Sin will deceive you into being an idolater and not acknowledging that you're an idolater. I'd say we live in a society full of idolatry, and yet most people are are completely oblivious to the presence of idolatry in our society. Most people worship fiat currency, which even if we had just a concept of fiat currency wouldn't hold any value to us in and of itself. People worship the applause and approval of mankind. People worship power. It's not a real power. It's a false power. All real power belongs to God. But it's a petty tyranny that exists in society today. Uh, people worship the lusts of the flesh and, and the desires of the human uh, heart and human carnality. And all of these things have been placed above God. I think it's a sincere question to ask, when was the last time that anybody in this country ever made a hard decision in denying themselves and putting God first in something? Idolatry has become prevalent in our society. It is the deception of their sin. When you let sin in your life, it's going to deceive you about some things. That's why you need your Bible, because a deceived person doesn't know they're deceived. 
I, I wish the devil would send you an email or a text and let you know when you're deceived, but he won't do that. That's a little defeating to his purposes. The nature of deception is the deceived person never thinks they are deceived. So the only thing that can dislodge them from that deception is something outside of themselves that can bear witness and testimony to their state and to their condition. Well, what did the children of Israel do? They didn't like what God had to say about it, so they found a God that would say what they wanted said about it. And sin, when we give it a place in our life, it will deceive us likewise. Notice number three, the defilement of their sin. Verse number eight, he says, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now, in this passage, he's he's hearkening up the testimony and the story about the time that the children of Israel fell into idolatry at a place called Baal Peor. And there's a lot more to this passage. I encourage you to study it. It goes back to Balaam and his desire uh, to ensnare the children of Israel while somehow escaping the anger of God. But listen to what the Bible says about this moment. Numbers chapter 25, verse number 1. The Bible says, "...in Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel." When it talks about fornication here, it's speaking about spiritual fornication, idolatry in other words. And yet we find that the way that the path was laid for Israel to fall into this sin was that the men of Moab gave their daughters to be wives unto the children of Israel. So we find this, that sin never stays in its little compartment. It always defiles everything else around. We would like to believe that we can compartmentalize our spiritual life with Christ away, insulate it from the effects of our sin. We like to imagine that we can dip a toe in sin and pull it back out very quickly and it won't affect us. We like to imagine that we can keep our priorities straight and we'll make sure even though sin's in our life, we're not going to let it distract us from serving the Lord, going to church and being a good Christian. But all that is naive delusion. Sin will defile your whole life. It's pesky like that. It won't stay in one place. And just as the children of Israel, when they allowed this iniquity in their hearts. It produced idolatry in their lives and it spread throughout the nation. It didn't stay just to one family or to one place or to one person. And the dangerous thing about your sin is it won't behave either. It won't stay in one place. It'll destroy your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your neighbors, your church family, your family, your friends. It defiles any and everything that it touches. Look at verse number 9. This is interesting. The Bible says this, Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. This is probably the most fascinating of all these examples. Mainly because Christ, while there are theophanies in the Old Testament, and certainly there were special particular relationships that Christ had with Israel. For instance, He was that, that rock. That rock was a picture of Him. But you and I both understand that Christ was not walking amongst and ministering amongst Israel in a way that was transparently known to them. So the question has to be asked, how did they tempt Christ? It doesn't say they tempted God. It says they tempted Christ. When we go back to the passage, we learn a little bit about what was going on. It takes place in Numbers chapter 21. And the Bible says this, The people spake against God and against Moses. You remember Moses is God's man. Not only that, he is a picture 
of God's man that would come later on, not just God's man, but God as man, Jesus Christ. He's that prophet that would be raised up to Israel. They spake against God, then they spake against Moses. And this is what they said, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. See, here's what began to happen when they began to grow discontented, when they let sin have a place in their life. It wasn't long they began to question the authorities that God had put in their life. They began to question Moses. They didn't just speak against God. They spoke against Moses. And their complaint was this, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We could maybe summarize it this way. They said, You don't know what you're doing, and why should you be the one to decide this? You're doing a terrible job of leading them. In other words, what did sin produce in their life? Well, it produced defiance. But when they spoke against Moses, they were speaking against Christ. For Moses was a picture of Christ. And I would say in our lives, listen, we grow discontented with God. We begin to criticize God. We better remember who it is we're criticizing. We're criticizing the one that loved us, that bought us, that paid for us. And that has a price in our life. Sin will always bring a defiant spirit and attitude. I have rarely met someone that was in sin that wouldn't fight for their sin. They'd fight tooth and toenail to defend to you why it's right, why it's not wrong, why they're right, why everything they're doing makes sense, why everything they're doing is righteous, why everything they're doing is sanctioned of God. But at the end of the day, we'd almost have to say, thou protestest too much. Why do we feel that need? Why did they protest to Moses? Well, because at the end of the day, they were bucking Moses' authority. They were disdaining Moses' authority. And sin will always produce in us a defiant spirit. So they tempted Christ, verse 9. Then look at verse number 10. He says, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, if I'm being frank, it's a little hard to peg this moment in Israel's history. Because they spent about 96% of their time murmuring against God. But certainly if we were to go back through the history of Israel, as Paul is wanting us to do in this moment, there's a few moments we could point to as examples. Probably the most familiar would be the moment when Korah and his band of conspirators tried to overthrow the authority of Moses. Look in Numbers chapter 16. The Bible says in verse number 1 of that chapter, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Down in verse 32, we learn what happened to them. The Bible says, And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses. All the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. They began to murmur and complain against God's leadership in their life. You know, I find this in my life. When I let sin in my life, it's not long and I grow unsatisfied with God. 
I have found that there's been many occasions in my life, and we could probably point to young children as an example of this, that there are plenty of things that they are unsatisfied with that there is no reason or right for them to be unsatisfied with. Uh, you can put any of them at the dinner table, and you've probably had uh, children or known of children in your life that they just couldn't be fed. There's nothing in the way it didn't exist. The things they liked to eat did not exist. And it didn't matter what you put in front of them. They just didn't want it. They didn't like it. But really, that was more a figment of their spirit and imagination. Oftentimes, if you can get a child to eat and to try something, they'll then grow to enjoy that thing. Or often they'll find that instantly they enjoy that food, whatever it may be. And so discontentment is not always a product of some problem with whatever the item is we're discontent with. And the greatest example of this is the mere fact that people can be discontent with God. God's never done anything wrong, and yet we'll still find fault in it. We'll have to lie to ourselves and and lie to our heart and mind to do it. But we'll gladly do that if it will allow space for us to persist in our sin. You let sin in your life, it won't be long. You'll be bitter, you'll be unhappy, you'll be discontent. You'll look around and blame everyone else for that discontentment. Then when they're no longer there, you'll look up towards God and blame Him rather than acknowledging that reality. Sin will always lead you down a place of emptiness. Doesn't provide substance in your heart. Doesn't provide anything meaningful in your life. It can only bring you to emptiness. And so sooner or later, you're going to turn and look at God and say, you know, God, you've done messed up. When in reality, it's not the Lord that's messed up. He's never messed up. But when we let sin in our life, it produces a discontentment. They grew unhappy with God's leadership. They said, Lord, you're not running our life right. We're not satisfied with the direction that you're taking us. And so they began to criticize the Lord. Now, Paul gives these five examples. And then finally, he points to their cautionary example to us. Look at verse number 11. We see first a word of consideration here. He says, now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now, there's not much difference between the words example and insample, but there is a small difference between the two. An example is something that you might point out at a distance. An insample is something that you would hold up and point to at close inspection. And what Paul's saying here is, God let these things happen to them and recorded them for us so that we could go back and study carefully what has happened to them. Can I tell you one of the wise... Hey, listen... Experience is a great teacher, but it's pretty expensive. It would be wisdom for you and for I to take the experiences of others and cause them to redound unto our wisdom and our discernment and our discretion. You can go through and learn every hard lesson that there is to learn, and you can let life chew you up and spit you out, and you barely make it, battle-scarred and gnarled when you come to the end of life. Or you can have the wisdom to step back and say, you know, I'm going to look at the examples of others, and I'm going to spare myself of those hard lessons that they've had to learn. Paul says this, you can learn this lesson on your own, or you can make the decision that you want to look at what happened to them and let it be an ensample unto you. He says they're written for our admonition. In other words, for our instruction to teach us. To admonish is to correct someone in an instructive way. When you admonish a child, you are telling them what they did wrong and how they should have avoided doing what they did wrong, and how they can do it right the next time. Paul says, God let these things happen so that we could consider them and weigh the wisdom of them. And notice what he says here, upon whom the ends of the world are come. That interesting language, ends of the world. Uh, That term is being used prophetically and dispensationally. When he says ends of the world, he's not saying the world is ending, but he's saying that 
we are in the final state of this age until there is a change dispensation. In other words, he's saying that we have reached the place, we have reached the limit of God's revelation to us. We have all the things that we need to make the decisions that lay before us in life. This happened to them for an example for our benefit so that we could learn from those things. But there's no more cautionary tales coming after this recorded in God's Word. If we won't heed the lessons that are given us, then we'll receive no more lessons. We see a word of consideration. Then we see in verse 12 a word of caution. He says, wherefore. Now that's interesting that he says wherefore. Uh, one person said that, that the wherefores are there for a reason. And you ought to pay attention to them. When wherefore is spoken of in the Bible, it's pointing back to something previously established and substantiated and saying in light of that truth. Now what does he say? Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I've often heard this verse quoted and it is often quoted in the context of standing in your own ability in life. And while I think there's a truth there, certainly when we think we're standing in our own ability, we are setting ourselves up for a fall. But I think the context here tells us that Paul's talking about the idea of standing against the influence of temptation. He's saying, you know, all these people that passed through the cloud, all these people that ate of the manna, all these people that drank of the rock, all these people that saw God in ways that you've never even seen God, and they couldn't stand against temptation. What makes you think you can stand against temptation? Now somebody's going to say, oh, preacher, that's discouraging. No, he's going to tell us what we need to do here in a moment. But first we just see this word of caution. If you think you're strong enough to get neck deep in temptation and not let it affect you, you better think again. I don't care who you are. I don't care how spiritual you think you are. I mean, if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. And the whole reason Paul points to this is to say, hey, it happened to them. Don't you think it happened to us? I mean, listen, I understand we have a lot of blessings today they didn't have then. We've got a completed Bible. we got the indwelling Holy Ghost. Hey, we got the fellowship of believers in the local church. we got a lot of precious things. But don't discount that whole following God visibly in front of you in the form of a cloud in the desert thing. That was pretty significant too. And if these people so firmly, resolutely convinced and, and, and solidified on the presence and power of God... If there in the shadow of his shadow they would fall into sin, what would you why would you think that you or I would not fall into sin if we try to immerse ourselves in its presence and merely stand against its influence? We see a word of caution here, but then we see a word of comfort, verse thirteen. He says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Now here he's emphasizing again what happened to them can happen to you. What happened to them is happening to you. But you can choose to make the right decision. You don't have any special, outsized, outportioned form of temptation in your life. You're facing the same things that they face. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. We have here a word of comfort, and it can be summarized in this. God will never put you in a position where your only choice is to sin. Well, He's faithful to always make sure that our exposure to temptation is moderated in such a way that our desires and our temptations can never overwhelm our will to the degree 
that we could be considered blameless or guiltless in the matter of our behavior and in the matter of sin. We always have the choice to walk away. Now, you stand and stay and fight, it may whoop you. But you always have the choice to walk away. Uh, it does not say He will uh, always uh, provide for you a way of strength that you may be able to bear it. But He says a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And that brings us to verse 14. We see a word of counsel here. This is interesting. It's easy to skip over this. It feels a little out of place. But when you consider it in the context, as everything in the Word of God is, it's not out of place. It's right where it ought to be. We have another wherefore. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Preacher McBride said something the other day when he was preaching that resonated, that stuck with me. You know, hey, sometimes a good run, uh, uh, sometimes a poor run is better than a good stand. We oftentimes say, well, preacher, you don't understand. I, I, I can bear it. I can handle it. I can handle it. Uh, listen, I, I've, I've seen people my whole life that get involved in sin. They start hanging out in places that sin hangs out, hanging around with people that sin hangs around with. And, and they always say the same thing. Oh, preacher, I can handle it. I can handle it. I can handle it. Your Bible tells you you can't handle it. And in fact, what your Bible tells you to do is not stand there and handle it, but run from it and get away from it. You have no promise that God's going to give you supernatural spiritual strength to withstand temptation while dwelling in the presence of it. But you have a biblical promise that God will always make a way for you to get out from under it and get away from it. And so Paul's message is simply this. If people that saw more than you've seen, if people that tasted more than you have tasted, if people that experienced things that you've never experienced, still in the midst of all that fell into sin, we ought to recognize that sin is a dangerous thing. It begins with desire and it deceives us and it, it defiles us and, and, and it produces defiance in, in our life and finally it leaves us discontent with the Lord and it is a dangerous thing. So rather than play around with it, rather than treat it as though it is some jest and some jape and stand there and taunt it and leer at it and pretend like we're spiritual enough to withstand it, we ought to respect it with the respect it deserves. And instead of hanging around in its presence, we ought to flee from it. Because I don't care who you are or how spiritual you think you are. You're no match for the devil. The Bible never commands us, it never commands us to flee from the devil, but we are to flee from temptation. If we fled from the devil, he'd just stab us in the back, one commentator said. If we resist him, he'll flee from us. But when it comes to the matter of temptation, what's the smartest thing? Man, get out from there. Hey, listen, we've been watching these wildfires uh, taking place up here in, in Gatlinburg and and all, uh, you know, the Smokies, Wears Valley, and places like that. And there are a handful of people that have been properly trained who are tasked with the responsibility to stand there and fight those fires. And, and uh, you'd probably, e even for them, I mean, I don't know how they, I don't know how they do it. But for the vast majority of people, you know what the right thing to do is? Run from the smoke. Because where the smoke is, there's fire. Run from it. They're not telling people to buckle down, knuckle down, and break out the water hose and try to fight it off. They're saying it's too dangerous. You better get out of there while you can. How foolish it would be if with all these firefighters out there fighting it, laboring, and it's still even being a challenge. Really, God's probably going to have to put out that fire. Uh, them it being a challenge and them laboring to try to get it under control. If they're fighting and it's a losing battle, then why? listen, why would somebody out there with a spray gun think they could do it? Paul's saying, hey, listen, wouldn't it be better just to flee from temptation? Instead of standing there pretending like you're able to handle it, 
Boy, it's high stakes, friend. Your life can be destroyed in a moment. I don't know what we think we have to prove in facing down temptation, but I think prudence, wisdom would suggest that we ought to flee from it instead of trying to face it down. Let's bow together tonight. I want to give you an opportunity to talk to the Lord about something. The Lord may have dealt with you about some area of your life specifically. Uh, you say, preacher, how would I know if you had? Because it's the thing you couldn't get off your mind. It's the thing you kept bringing your mind back to as the preaching was going on. It was the thing you didn't want to acknowledge you were thinking about. But the Holy Ghost kept bringing it to the forefront of your mind. God's dealing with you about that thing. You have a choice to make now. You're either going to yield that to the Lord, let Him have His will and His way, or you're going to hold on to that thing and try in your own strength and ability to face and to deal with it. I'm counseling you not to do it in your own strength. Bring it to the Lord tonight. Let Him have His will and His way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.